Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys, this episode of Other People is brought to you by the Litbreaker Ad Network. Litbreaker helps book publishers, authors, and premium brands reach an engaged audience of authors, artists, editors, agents, producers, bloggers, media professionals, and readers. Lots of readers. Litbreaker ads appear on The Rumpus, Large Hearted Boy, HTML Giant, Full Stop, The Nervous Breakdown, Plowshares, and other high quality magazines and blogs featuring literary, arts-oriented, and pop culture content and above-the-fold advertising. Visit litbreaker.com for more information about advertising packages. Litbreaker is also accepting new partner sites in literary, general interest, mystery, creative writing, young adult, romance, and other book genres. That's the Litbreaker Ad Network, an ad network for the literary, arts, and culture web. Be sure to visit litbreaker.com for more information. It's an ad network for smart, interesting, readerly people. Go and advertise on it. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listing. Just one person at just one time. Right. Okay, right. everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is me talking into your ear. This is you dropping into a sudden defensive crouch. Thank you for being here. My name is Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles, California. It's great to be with you. Happy holidays. How are you? Are you in a good state of mind? We're almost there. Home stretch. The final countdown, the last week, essentially, of 2013. Olivia Lang is my guest. Uh, her new book, The Trip to Echo Spring, uh, was one of the best books I read all year. It was published in the UK this past summer, and it is about to arrive uh, on American shores from uh, Picador. Is it Picador or is it Picador? How do I not know this? I need clarity on this. Uh, the Trip to Echo Spring is available for pre-order right this very moment. And as of December 31st, you can get your hands on it uh, wherever books are sold. And uh, I should add that New Year's Eve is the perfect publication date for this book because the subtitle of The Trip to Echo Spring is, quote, On Writers and Drinking. It's about alcoholic writers. 
and uh, you know it's about other things too but centrally uh, it is about six famous male american authors who were uh, famously self-destructive john cheever raymond carver uh, ernest hemingway f scott fitzgerald john berryman and tennessee williams it's a great book it's much more than that it's a lot of things and i'm very excited to have olivia here and she and i are going to be talking momentarily otherwise uh, i've been tweeting a lot lately so if you're one of my twitter followers you've probably noticed this i've been uh, tweeting uh, perhaps too much I go through these phases and, and recently I decided that I would just start tweeting freely because, you know, I have this problem as a writer where I censor myself, I edit myself preemptively, I freeze up, I worry, I worry that what I'm about to say is uh, meaningless or needless or just a weak and uh, pitiful echo of something said many times before and probably much better by uh, other more talented individuals and I also worry that I'm just making an ass of myself needlessly and uh, frittering away my time but uh, you know things being what they are <laughs> I am on Twitter and I use Twitter in kind of a strange way I have a personal account at Brad Listy and uh, then this podcast has its own feed at other people pod and for my at Brad Listy account I tend to only retweet. I don't tweet at Brad Listy. I, I curate other people's tweets. And I go through these massive retweeting binges that are uh, centered on certain themes. You sort of have to see it to understand what I'm talking about. And then uh, at the other end of the spectrum, I've started using at other people pod as a kind of unedited, unfiltered, thought machine type situation. Perhaps to excess. Where I just tweet about whatever is on my mind, and I try not to second-guess myself. And, you know, it gets me into trouble. It gets me into trouble with myself. It's hard for me to let go. I second-guess myself. I worry about what I'm doing, uh, what I'm saying, how I'm saying it, why I'm saying it. <laughs> like, for example, the other day I waded into this whole uh, HTML giant Kate Zambrino thing. Are you guys aware of this? I mean, I'll try, you know, I'm not even going to bother giving like a full play-by-play, -play, but quickly, uh, some guy named Garrett Strickland posted an offensive... Uh, quote-unquote prose poem about Kate Zambrino uh, over at HTML Giant and uh, there was an immediate backlash there was lots of anger and heated rhetoric in the online literary community in response to this uh, the comment boards were ablaze Twitter was ablaze and so uh, I was reading about this and uh, you know going through all this mess online and then I found myself joining in the conversation and providing for my followers uh, a stream of consciousness assessment of the situation that was notable only for its confusion and uh, contradictory logic. <laughs> I 
I never used to participate in, in discussions about stuff like this. Especially stuff like this, where everyone's chiming in, talking about the same thing. In the literary, you know, in this small, like, little niche of the literary world, anyway. Because, you know, what do I have to add? And yet I tried to add something. So, I don't know. It's probably no big deal, but I worry about it. Did I offend someone? Did I offend uh, Kate Zambrino? Did I offend other people who commented? I have no idea. It's the internet. But there are people involved. I don't know. You see what I'm saying? Can you hear it in my voice? I don't know what to think. So why should I say something? Maybe I should just say that I don't know what to think. (laughs) Uh, It's called incisive commentary right there just for you. And uh, by contrast, I did live tweet a recent trip to Disney on ice. I went to uh, Disney on ice with my three-year-old daughter. And uh, that tweeting, I felt pretty good about. That's what Twitter is for. It's about, uh, you know, tweeting about uh, horrific experiences that you share with your children. (laughs) So uh, let me do some of these. I figure I haven't read tweets in a long time. Why don't I read you some of my tweets uh, that I I wrote as I was live tweeting uh, Disney on Ice. Okay, here we go. At Disney on Ice with my three-year-old. Just arrived at Staples Center. Lots of sad, broken parents here. Am now watching characters from Finding Nemo do choreographed skate-slash-dance to the song Vogue. Daughter melting down over appearance of the evil Ursula. Inconsolable. Me practically shouting as colored lights spray across the crowd. It's not real. Just relax. It's not real. Need to ask Usher where the cool-down room is. Just involuntarily reached out to hold the hand of the father next to me. Feel like all books and movies should have a quote on ice version, i.e., as I lay dying on ice. Pretty sure James Franco has never done anything, quote, on ice. Wouldn't be surprised in the least to see a headline that reads, Disney on Ice cast commits mass suicide. 
Okay, uh, there you have it, folks. How do you like that? Do you like that? Is that enjoyable? Some recent tweeting from my at other people pod account. Uh, did I equip myself well? Did I earn uh, your admiration? Are you smiling at me right now through a deeply pained expression? Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest today is Olivia Lang. Her new book, The Trip to Echo Spring on Writers and Drinking, is due out from Picador on December 31st. Pre-order it right now. Buy it when it comes out. Very pleased to have her here on the program uh, as she prepares for her big American book tour in January. So here she is, folks. This is Olivia Lang, and her book, once again, is called The Trip to Echo Spring. I'm lying in my bed, which is where I am almost all the time. I write all my books in my bed. It's kind of my office. Oh, you do? So you're, I mean, you lie like you're horizontal when you write. No, I'm kind of propped up on quite a lot of cushions. It's okay. quite decadent. All right. No, that sounds good because I've, uh, I've heard of this before. Mark Twain, I want to say, wrote that way. Woody Allen writes that way. Patricia Highsmith, Truman Capote, Colette. So it's like, a grand tradition. It is. Okay. So how did you arrive at that? Like, do you have a bad back or were you just like, you know what? I feel more comfortable and relaxed and creative in this you know, particular posture. I think I've always liked being in bed as much as possible. And it's a really good way. I mean, there is actually a real reason as well, which is I find it much easier to tune out everything else. You know, I'll be working at my desk, I'll be doing my emails. But when I'm writing, I like to just kind of come in and go into that sort of dreamy space. So it's, it's always worked really well for me. And you've been doing this for how long? Probably my entire journalistic career, as well as all the books I've written. So... Yeah, it's it's been quite a long time. I started out writing book reviews in bed, I and I graduated like, writing books. I feel like maybe I should start doing this podcast from bed. I, that sounds good. <laughs> I feel I feel inferior for being at a desk right now, sitting in a chair. I don't know if I'm going to be, you know, nearly as sharp as you are. But uh, <laughs> I want to say at the outset that uh, I love this book. I don't know if you heard, but I just uh, talked about this book in a recent episode where I was going over. Uh, my five or five of my favorite uh, books of 2013. Oh, that's so nice! I'm really pleased to hear that. Yeah, no, I uh, I just tore through this thing, and I feel like like I, I talk a lot on my show uh, about being obsessed with hybrid forms in literature, and uh, I love literary biography, which is part of the reason why I think I do this show. I like knowing about 
writers and creative people in their lives and how they go about things. And uh, I think literary biography, sa- uh, you know, satisfies that to a degree. Um, mm-hmm. But but also travel writing. Uh, you're really good nature writer, which I want to ask you about as well. But it, this book kind of melds all these different. Uh, disparate interests of mine into like a really cohesive whole. And I found myself both uh, admiring it a lot, but also feeling like extremely jealous of you. And I feel like I should just come clean about that because I, just, <laughs> I wish I could have written this book. This is a really, this is kind of the book I wish I could write. <laughs> That's really flattering. I'm really pleased to hear that. <laughs> so, okay. So let's start, maybe we should start a little bit closer to the beginning. Like, how did you get your start? You mentioned a journalistic career. You work as a journalist in addition to doing, um, you know, your books, but I, I feel like there's a, there's an air of journalism, you know, journalism in these books, like reportage, you know, an investigation. Yeah. I mean, I, I have had a weird career. So I actually started as a herbalist, which, um, was very sort of distant from all all of that. So I was working with, I trained for five years in medical herbalism, which is, you know, it's basically a medicine degree in the UK. Um, and then I saw patients, I ran a practice and I kind of specialized in depression and anxiety, sort of mood disorders. And after a while, I realized I really wasn't happy with that. And so I went to journalism school and got a gig pretty quickly at The Observer and was working on the book section there and then became the deputy literary editor. So I had this sort of second background that was very much in the book's world and very much sort of writing, book reviewing, criticism, the sort of stuff that I still do a bit now. And it was, you know, the end days of journalism. So they were getting rid of lots of people and that was my opportunity really to start writing my own books. So it's been a kind of snaking path. Okay, that's interesting. So, and like the when you say herbalism, you know, for you know, I might be getting confused by terminology. Like, this is medicine, or is it like naturopathy? Like you're talking about like like plant medicine. It's treating people with medicines made from plants. Okay, okay. So, like marijuana and like other stuff. (laughs) No, tends to be things that you can use legally. (laughs) Oh well, Um, we're we're legalizing some places over here. You know, some yeah, that's true. Yeah. yeah, no, we haven't done that yet here. Um, I don't know if there's an equivalent in America, but it's basically like, you know, your classic sort of medieval witch medicine, but with a lot of 21st century pharmacology and anatomy and physiology. So it's it's quite um, a strenuous training, but you're actually just treating people with tinctures and extracts from common plants. Okay, so let's just say that I have trouble focusing. What would you recommend for me? Rosemary. 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 Okay. So what does that mean? Like you just go to the store and get some rosemary or? You could have rosemary tea. You could grow it in your garden. You could cut it. You could drink a cup of tea from it and it improves concentration, energy, that sort of thing. Focus. So do you, do you mean now that, I mean, I know you've kind of left this behind this, this particular career path, but how much of this do you still implement in your own life? I, I don't take herbs so much anymore, but I think the grounding in it of studying botany, spending a lot of time understanding how plants work. I think the kind of attention to detail really helped me as a writer. But also the whole thing of like patients coming in, taking a case history, getting people to talk about what's going on with them. You're listing stories. And I think that is very, very similar to journalism and to the kind of writing I do as well. You're getting people to tell you their life. And you're thinking around what those stories mean and what the deeper levels of what their symptoms mean. So it seems to me, in a way, there's quite a natural crossover. 
Yeah, well, you know, I think that that's often common for writers. Um, well, I mean, it's partic- particularly writers who have either a parallel or a preceding career to their mm-hmm. work in books. Like, I think of like how many writers I've heard of over the years. Not that there's like dozens, but there are several who worked as architects, which strikes me as both. Uh, hmm. interesting and also logical in some way, you know, the, the, yeah, the building structure, building structure, recognizing motifs, you know, finding yeah. ways to implement those lessons into their books. And then uh, I think of writers who have musical backgrounds or musical interests and can, you know, play instruments and how much musicality factors into writing. And, um, you know, I haven't talked yeah. to, I haven't, yeah. I haven't talked to too many writers who worked as herbalists, but you know, <laughs> I, there's th- lots of doctors, right? Well, yeah, Louis Ferdinand Celine, who wrote one of my favorite novels, was a doctor, um, mm. you know, and I felt like, and I mean, it's like, it's very much a part of his, uh, of journey to the end of the night, you know, that like those experiences actually factor in, but who else was a doctor? My, who am I forgetting? Isn't Chris Adrian? I think he's a doctor and there's somebody else who came check off a doctor. No, somebody like that. Yeah. I just, and I just got a galley not too long ago from somebody who was like depressingly well-educated and like had like a law degree and like a medical practice and also like, you know, wrote a spectacular book. So oh God. yeah, I'm still recovering. I think that's why I've blocked, <laughs> I think that's why I've blocked it out. I just, I can't deal with this. This person's too. Yeah. Let's forget his name. Let's never remember it. <laughs> let's bury this in the ash heap of history. Um, well, that's cool. So, uh, and I think that it's also, um, taking, I think no matter what you do, whether you have a day job or whether you had some other career before you decided to go into uh, books and, and writing and literature, uh, I, I think you'd be kind of foolish to not try to pull lessons from it or to, you know, it's, mm-hmm. it seems like a natural, mm-hmm. it seems like a natural process, but I guess some people might not necessarily find the lessons that they need or, or could have by digging in a little bit. And also it's you, isn't it? It's the kind of interest that you have are going to be the same whatever field you're working in. You know, if you're interested in other people and people's stories, then that's kind of going to be, that's going to drive you to different sorts of work, I think. Okay, so just so my listeners can get like a better grasp, because, you know, I've I've sort of alluded to this with regard to all, you know, everything I said about hybrid forms and whatnot, but just so people can get maybe a clearer idea of what your preoccupations are, uh, specifically with the trip to Echo Spring, like m- maybe you could talk about the different threads that you sort of tied together here. Sure. So it's it's an investigation into the relationship between writers and alcohol, both in writers' lives and in the books that they're creating. So it's a sort of study into this kind of occult hidden role that alcohol has in our literature, in the body of literature. Um. And that's a huge question. Obviously, that's a vast amount of different writers I could have looked at. So I narrowed it down to six people, six male American writers. And that's Ernest Hemingway, F. Scott Fitzgerald, Tennessee Williams, John Cheever, Roman Carver, and John Berryman. Okay, can I stop you right there for a second? Yeah, of course. Why six male American? Why six males, first of all? But why, and also, why six male American writers? Okay, so first of all, the reason, backtracking a bit, the reason that I was interested in the subject in the first place is because I grew up in an alcoholic family and the alcoholic in question was a woman. And I think there was something about female alcoholism that just felt a little bit too close to home. So that ruled out writing about women, although I'm well aware that you could write a completely fascinating book about, say, Jean Rhys and Marguerite Duras and 
all all sorts of other American and European women. So that that's that part. As to why this six, I think it was really important that I worked on people whose work I genuinely loved because I was going to be looking at such dark areas of their lives. I was going to be writing about behavior that was really quite unpleasant sometimes. I felt like I really don't want to come in and write some hatchet job. I didn't want it to be really exposing or cruel. And I thought if I didn't particularly like their writing, there was the possibility of it coming across like that. It was also important that there was enough patterning between their life, enough relationships between their life. So they're all 20th century men. They Sometimes they were friends. Sometimes they were each other's mentors, students. They generally knew each other. And there were all sorts of little threads back and forth between their lives, which meant that it could be a coherent book rather than just looking at one in each chapter in a way that has been done before and that I find slightly frustrating. Well, I mean, that's the other thing about the book that I found like really impressive is like how it's structured and threaded together. And, you know, I can see because it, I don't know, I I guess I thought about my own work or like I I tried to imagine how I would approach something similar. And you can start to imagine how quickly the ball of yarn could start to Mm. get away from you. Do you know what I'm saying? Like you you must have, you must have really struggled to like, to, to hammer this into a structure? Like, how did you do that? <laughs> so that was, that was the other part of, of what I was going to say about how it's built, is that there are these lives, I wanted to tell these stories, but it seemed to me quite early on that the best way to structure it was to look at the trajectory of alcoholism itself. So it starts with the kind of early days of drinking, the intoxicating, kind of it's all fun, and it works forward through all of their lives, looking at, the time when that starts becoming a bit darker, a bit more addictive, it ending up with some really dark stories. So there's John Berryman's suicide, Hemingway's suicide, and then ending up with recovery. It was really important that I also built in recovery stories. And then what I did with that sort of pattern, that trajectory, is laid that out across America. So I made a physical journey across America, right. going through various kind of way stations in their drinking lives. And that really... I think it both provides a structure for the book and also it gives some relief, I think, for the reader to be able to read about these kind of beautiful landscapes and just just to have a bit of a sort of step out from these often quite claustrophobic stories that I'm telling. Right. Well, no, that's the thing. There are these like beautiful, I mean, you think about like, just to give uh, one example, like Hemingway being like spectacularly drunk and kind of deteriorating, but you know. He's in beautiful places. He's doing like these great things, and uh, you know, against these like you know spectacular natural uh, settings, you know, as backdrops. Mm. And I'm uh, very impressed with how well you're able to write about nature. How do you do that? Like, what, like, where does that come from? You know, is it just natural ability? Do you read a lot of nature writing? I do. My first book was very much nature writing, and I do read a lot of nature writing. And I think also I was brought up in that. I was brought up by parents who were both very passionate gardeners. They liked to be outdoors. And so there was a lot of noticing. And then, again, studying as a herbalist, that really taught you to look. And, you know, when I'm looking at a field or a forest or whatever, I'm not just seeing green. I know what I'm looking at. And I think that was a really good foundation as a writer. Well, see, that's the whole point. See, when I look at a field, all I see is just like, grass (laughs) grass <laughs> I, I don't have the i don't have the names you know like I, I don't know how to name i, I think about you can this, learn I, those 
these names. I know, I know, but I need like you to walk me around and tell me, <laughs> or I need to read a book, but it's hard, you know, in passing. <laughs> Uh, but I don't have names for trees or I'll see a flower and I'll be like, that's a beautiful flower. I have no idea what to call it. And that's a, huh. pro- that's a problem. That's and I, you know, I guess that answers my question. If you want to write better about nature, you might want to start by learning what shit is. <laughs> yeah. That, that's literally all it is, is just learning to look. I mean, that's, that's all writing, isn't it? It's whatever it is you're writing about. You just need to know what you're looking at. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, when it comes to the actual trip, like, did you conceive, and I mean, like, the physical journey that you took uh, to try to, like, see these places, uh, you, you conceived of that, um, like, with the, did you have the full book in your head when you set out, or was it sort of like operating on instinct? Like, I think this is what I, something I want to write about. I know that these are my guys. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, how full was the... Um, yeah, I'm trying to remember. I think I had a rough, chapter plan i think i knew i i built the i built the trip itself like i worked out where i wanted to go when and that was built around the sort of sense of knowing that i wanted to start with kind of happy stories go to darker stories come back to happier stories so and i knew i had to end with raymond carver because that was that was the best sort of second life story so those elements were built in and then so much of it just came through research and through you know what what happened in the trip itself but also what happened in the months and months afterwards of reading because I didn't necessarily know all the links between them often that was something that would turn up like a year later isn't it great though when you're doing uh research for a book and you wind up finding these weird synchronicities or yeah that's like I think that because I had that happen when I was working on my first novel and like in some and sometimes in, in to a very spooky effect almost huh. uh, where you couldn't believe it. You're like, oh, my God, I had no idea. And, and it I remember feeling like, OK, this means I'm on the right track. Like I took yeah. it. I took, yeah. I took, yeah. I took, I took I it as, as encouragement, you know. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. When I was writing about um, Hemingway, he ha- he makes this sort of train journey south when he hears that his father's been shot. He's on a train with his little son. And so I was writing about that, and just before they got on the train, they were having drinks in this hotel. And I suddenly thought, that's a familiar name, and I realized that that's where John Cheever, years later, used to do a lot of his boozing. And those sort of coincidences just seem really odd, really interesting. Well, I was at the, uh, I was in New Orleans. Um, you know, my family's from Louisiana. My parents are. I didn't grow up there, but my parents are. So I was back there for a family wedding not too long ago. And uh, had a drink at the carousel bar at the Hotel Montalino. Oh, yeah. Which you wrote about. And I think, like, I was excited uh, to stay there and to get to go to that bar for, you know, at least partially because of your book. And so uh, my wife and I show up. We have our daughter with us. Um, My daughter needs to take a nap. So I'm like, I'm going to go down to the drugstore and get some water and some, like, basic, you know, provisions for the room. And uh, my wife was going to put my daughter down for a nap. So suddenly I'm like on the loose in the French Quarter. I get this water and then I'm coming back into the hotel and I stop at the bar and I'm like, okay, I'm going to have a drink at this bar because I'm here and I have like some spare time. So I go in and I sit at that bar. And for so listeners uh, can get like a visual understanding of this. Like the bar actually rotates very slowly like a carousel. <laughs> And I sat at this bar and I had a a, a drink and I started to feel sick <laughs> from the yeah, spinning. It's, it's a weird place. Yes. I didn't, I couldn't, I, you know, I don't want to spin around. I don't want the bar that I'm sitting at to move. That's a bad combination. 
Yeah, it does seem like a really bad combination. <laughs> and it feels like kind of a haunted room as well. Like the light's quite weird and it moves at a very slow speed. So you're always thinking, am I imagining this? It's, it was, yeah, it's it like, wasn't my high point of drinking. No, 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 it's not. I, I don't want to, I don't want to rotate. I don't want to be at a rotating <laughs> object. <laughs> uh, but that's where, um, that is where Tennessee Williams used to booze. Hemingway liked that bar like that. The hotel Monteleone has like a very rich literary history. Yeah. Yeah. I can't imagine that that many writers hang out there now. Maybe they do, but it certainly is a sort of midpoint of the 20th century. It was very, very popular. Well, I hang out there now. I'm a, you hang out there, of I'm, course. I, yeah. I, annually. I sit there and have like one, <laughs> I have one drink and feel queasy. Once, once and then year. you stagger off <laughs> holding your head. <laughs> and I retire to my room with a bottle of water. Um, so the, the, there's the travel element which I think um, must have been really fun. Like, was it? It was amazing. Yeah, it was really fun. It was because I was traveling almost always by train. I just saw so much of America that I didn't have a clue about before. And it's so diverse, you know. So I was in Key West, which is beautiful and weird and tropical and luscious. And then kind of up in traveling across Dakota in the snow, like a few days later. So that sort of shift was amazing. And then that sort of falls there and digging around, looking for writer's houses or writer's haunts is always really fascinating because it's kind of banal and what you encounter isn't what was originally there. It's like tourists wandering around saying funny things. And I sort of really enjoyed all of that. I liked the eavesdropping and writing down those kind of conversations. Well, yeah. And there's like, you know, it provides the uh, potential for good accidents, like happy accidents and interesting, yeah. interesting things that wind up in the book. But, um, you know, moreover, I think it gives you as a writer, uh, like a really good adventure. And I, mm. I feel like so much of writing is like being bogged down in your, uh, in your office or wherever you write in bed, like, you know, reclining, (laughs) reclining (laughs) in your, you know, (laughs) state of like elegant repose or whatever. But, um, I love the idea of going out and doing something fun and Mm. interesting and big and then writing about it. I don't talking to people as well. I love that. Yes. Like being, having an immersive experience and making actual contact with the world strikes me just personally. I'm not trying to say that, you know, you can't do it the other way where you're just like, in a basement, like inventing a world. But for me, like, I love the idea of coming up with something like this and then getting to go out and have like an actual life experience that finds its way into the book. And, uh, I don't know. I was envious of the trip you got to take too. (laughs) Yeah, no, it was, it was really good. Was there any, were there any, like, what was the low point? Because travel, this is the great thing about travel too, is that it's not all roses. You know, there's a lot of discomfort and sleeplessness. And I mean, Did you have a point, were there any moments along the way where you were like, you know what, I just want to go home? (laughs) The the whole, I can sleep in my seat on Amtrak, that was a big mistake. I don't know what I was thinking. You what? That really, well, I had this, I didn't want to rent a cabin on Amtrak for the short journey, so I slept in my seat for two nights, which was really gross. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Because you're in, you know, it's it's like... um, I'm more comfortable than plane seats, but not a lot. And there's lots of people around and, you know, you're kind of disgusting. And yeah, I well, regretted that. Well, and the thing too is that like, I don't, I, 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 compl- I am completely mystified by anyone who can sleep 
sit, sitting upright in a chair. Like, I guess if you're, yeah. if you're tired enough, it can happen. But like, I can't sleep on an airplane. Like, I don't understand people who can just conk out on an airplane. It's impossible for me. Like, I have to be uh, lying down or at least close yeah. to it. Like, did you, I mean, like, I, I'm imagining these were sleepless nights or largely sleepless. Well, no, I, I mean, I had insomnia at the time anyway. I don't know what I was thinking. <laughs> I think I've had this idea that I'm a good sleeper, even though clearly I've been in this insomniac for years. Okay, so and wait. I should never, ever sit in a seat. I'm sure there are several insomniacs listening. What kind of uh, herb, herbs should they be taking? Is this like melatonin, St. John's Wort? Oh, Valerian is good for insomnia. Lavender is good for insomnia. But okay. I mean, I say that it yeah, maybe it did help my insomnia. It's a lot better these days. Yeah. Um, okay. So, with regard to your own personal story, which I think um, is another aspect of the book that I liked, is that you know it, you're obviously focusing a lot on literary biography, and you're doing this great travel writing, and you're taking this trip. But it's a very personal book too, and. You, yeah. I mean, it is right. I mean, because like, you yeah. do, you're doing this investigation um, because you're fascinated in these writers and you're fascinated in the history of alcohol as a kind of subtext to so much of our literature. <laughs> yeah. Uh, to say yeah. No, to say nothing of other arts, but I mean, it's a big it's a big factor. It, you know, hearing you say it or hearing me say it, it sounds so obvious that I, I'm sort of surprised that nobody's written. Uh, a book like this before maybe they have but i haven't read it people have but they're more academic there's maybe two or three but they're quite you know they're sort of cut and dried stories of each writer and their relationship with drinking or they're really academic okay uh, and more like an analysis of like the mayor of casterbridge and alcohol yeah well i you know did you learn did you did you come out of this experience um with a better understanding of your own trials with uh, having an alcoholic in your family and having to you know reckon you know uh, reckon with that yeah i think it was it was really um it really changed things partly because i talked to a lot of people like i talked to psychiatrists i went to aa meetings i talked to a neuroscientist at length after after i'd done the trip i spent a lot of time with him and just sort of piecing those things together, but particularly the AA meeting, I found I found that really moving, and especially reading so much about these these six guys and people like Tennessee Williams who just really really struggled with their drinking, and John Berryman who tried so hard to stop drinking. It was pretty humbling. It it made me realize how hard it is to stop. It made, gave me a lot of respect for people who are able to stop. Yeah. I mean, and just what, what is it? Like, what is addiction? Do you know that? Did you, I mean, is it, is it just a, is it an inherited genetic? It's at least 50% genetic. So it's at least 50% inherited, but it's not a hundred percent inherited. So there's lifestyle stuff. There's early life stuff in particular, childhood stuff, familial stuff, it really is a mystery. I mean, everybody I spoke to had ideas about the mechanisms by which it happens, the mechanisms by which it's potentially inherited. But as to why one person becomes an alcoholic and another person doesn't, it's still really something that I think will be revealed. There's an awful lot of work going into it at the moment. But what seems clear about it and what is just, again, quite mystifying about it is that it's possible to stop. Somebody can make a decision to stop. And that kind of fascinated me. Like, what's that line? Why is it that 
Berryman, who tried so hard, couldn't. But John Cheever, who really, really was drinking an awful lot, suddenly found himself able to. Yeah, what and I mean, not, what is it? I mean, because AA, obviously, um, you know, people have their um, criticisms of it, but it does work for a lot of people. Yeah, it really does. And I think the thing with AA is, the thing that's interesting with Berryman in particular is that AA requires you to have faith. Like, that's a really early, not necessarily in God, but to have faith in something outside yourself, to trust in something. And I think his sense of that was so badly damaged by what had happened to him in early life, which is that his father had shot himself, killed himself when he was a very young boy. In fact, outside his bedroom window, which is deeply unpleasant. Oh, God. That just left him with such a sort of damaged structure of trust that I think he could never really find that. He could never let go enough well, to become sober. Uh, Hemingway's father also killed himself. Hemingway's father also killed himself. But then lots of people's fathers killed themselves and they didn't necessarily become drunk. So it, it's never going to be just one thing. I mean, Hemingway's family history has a lot of depression in it, potentially a lot of alcoholism in it. So there's all of that sort of genetic... Well, and multiple suicides. I mean, lots multiple of... Multiple suicides, yeah. yeah. It's, a, yeah. it's a contagious thing, you know. Um, alcoholism, I mean, I, I think mm. that... Uh, there's the genetic component. I also think that, you know, if you have an alcoholic in your family and you watch this, you know, as an example, yeah. that's got to bleed into your psyche to some degree and you've got to guard definitely. against it, you know, because... Whether you're going to mimic it or you're going to go in the opposite direction, yeah, it's definitely going to leave a legacy. And and then I think that, uh, I mean, I, I think that suicide uh, is a really infectious thing. You know, it's really dangerous yeah. and, and um, yeah. lethal and... Uh, destructive, you know, and I was reading something recently. I want to say there's a book out by somebody called stay. I could be misremembering this, but it's about suicide. It's a um, nonfiction kind of like an investigation uh, of the whole oh, thing. Oh wow! Yeah. And, and it's like, I think like one of the reviews I read is that like there, that the author is arguing that it's like delayed homicide and, huh. and she's speaking to this very thing where like, you know, you wind up uh, creating such a uh, difficult psychological circumstance for those you leave behind, particularly those yeah. closest to you. And then, you know, it becomes a hard thing to shake. I can't even imagine like uh, being Berryman and having your father do that or Hemingway. Like uh, that's quite a, yeah. le- that's quite an awful legacy to lead, leave. Yeah. Yeah. And then to go on and do it yourself and leave that legacy again to your children. Ugh. It's yeah. just devastating. It's so, it's so distressing. Yeah. Well, so, um, you know, have you, I mean, I guess a, a natural question to ask would be like, what's your own relationship with alcohol today? Do you drink at all? Yeah, yeah, I drink. I mean, I'm a, I'm a British journalist, of course I drink. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but not, yeah, I've drunk more heavily at different points, but I've never felt addictive about it. And I've been, I've had friends who are alcoholics and I'm aware that there's a very different way that they're using alcohol to the way that I am. And, you know, mine's much more about kind of pleasure and enjoyment and, there's something different that an alcoholic is doing and that's frightening. I find it frightening. I find it frightening being with alcoholics who are drinking still. And it was certainly a terrifying part of my childhood. Like how long did that last? The period when I was a kid. Like, yeah, I mean, like, was it your whole entire childhood or I'm, I'm, forgive me if I'm misremembering. I read your book like, you know, two or three months ago and I have the memory of an elephant. 
Uh, wait, wait, do elephants remember stuff or not? No, elephants remember everything. Oh, I have the I have the memory of not an elephant, the opposite of an elephant. Um, it was, I guess, so my mum's gay and her partner came into our lives, I guess, when I was around six and her drinking got really bad maybe a couple of years after that. So there was a period of probably two years where it was out of control and then we ran away. So we ended up like taking our bags and and disappearing and what your, whole, your, your, your mother your and, my mother me and my sister right you guys just took off she got arrested and after some sort of drunken altercation and that night we kind of packed our bags and and left and never went back to that house so you know it really did kind of rock the foundations of my childhood but then after that things kind of calmed down a lot and when they did get back together, she'd been through rehab, so she wasn't drinking anymore. Nice lady. After after without the booze, were you like, oh, well, like, you know, or were you able to separate? It was difficult. Yeah, it was difficult. Yeah. Well, you yeah, know, for all of us, I think. Well, I mean, it's understandable, and I, you know, I, I think about my own experience because I drink a little bit, not a ton, increasingly less as I get older. Mostly because I just can't do it. I've got a child now, and. I, I'm not getting, I can't get up at six in the morning and have like a headache. It's bad enough, you know, when your kid, you, it's bad enough when my kid jumps into bed, like, you know, the cracking on it, it's like shrieking about like Mickey Mouse, you know, um, you can't, I don't understand how anybody does that with a hangover. I really don't, you know, but, uh, I also, uh, you know, to be, uh, to strike a more serious, uh, note, I feel like a sense of responsibility to be a good example. And I worry, even though we don't have uh, a ton of alcoholism in our gene pool, though there's always some somewhere, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I just feel like, you know, I, I want to be conscious of how I behave in front of her and make sure she doesn't like see in any way me using alcohol as a method of uh, pain relief. Do you know what I'm uh -huh. saying? Yeah, yeah, that's very ethical. I admire that. Well, I mean, you know, I feel, I, I hope so. I, I'm just trying to, I don't want to screw this up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Uh, and I feel too, like, I mean, I think this is like the fundamental thing uh, when it comes to alcohol and drug use is that, this is my thinking lately anyway, uh, and it's probably not any great revelation, but just common sense tells me that um, people are using this stuff because they're suffering and they're in pain and they want their pain to go away. And, mm -hmm. and the irony is that it actually makes the pain worse. Yeah. That's yeah. it. That's it. It's, yeah. it's like you're, they're taking this stuff as medicine, whether they're conscious of that or not, in an effort to nullify pain and numb themselves out and drive themselves to a level of consciousness below thought. And then in the process, they're actually exacerbating their pain. Yeah. And yet somehow absolutely unable to see that that's happening yeah. or because there's a sort of escalation of damage that alcohol is causing in their lives, there's more and more pain to swallow down. So there's more and more need to drink, but it's causing more and more problems, and it just becomes this incredibly vicious circle. Yeah. Well, and it's the thing, too, is that addiction kills. Like, I've seen that sentence, um, you know, I've heard it said, I've seen it online or whatever, but uh, I lost, lost a really close friend a couple of years ago to addiction, uh, an accidental overdose, and, mm -hmm. you know, it, that'll bring it home uh, like nothing else. You just go, oh, my God, like th this thing, whatever it is, you call it an illness, you call it, uh, I don't know. I know the definition is sort of mutable. But, mm -hmm. the, but I, I look at that and then just to, to kind of draw a, a different but parallel example, I look at Gore Vidal, who's a favorite writer of mine, 
yeah. who was the son of an alcoholic. His mother was an alcoholic and he was like, just like as good of a wit as like there was and like such a, um, you know, he's kind of a wickedly funny guy, but you know, at his, yeah. be- at his best, like his mind was so razor sharp. And then the last 10 years, like he just slipped and he went into like alcoholism and in a really sad way. And, um, you know, I, I guess mm-hmm. the point, the point that I'm trying to make is that, you know, my friend who died way, way before his time due to this, um, you know, that's a great tragedy, but even if you're able to somehow keep it at bay or quote unquote, control it, uh, into your later years, like eventually it's going to get you. There's yeah. just, there's no way yeah, out. It's going to, it's going to kill you, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. And that's what you see so tragically with somebody like Hemingway, who was a very talented drinker. He could put it away for years and years with seemingly no signs, but by the end he's just, um, you know, this sort of bore who's mean to his friends and writing badly. Yeah, well, that's exactly right. Like, you, and this is a common trait among uh, addicts is that a lot of them can uh, drink a ton. <laughs> yeah, uh, which yeah. I, which I guess is like you know probably makes sense to a lot of people, but not all addicts are that way. Some addicts they they have like two drinks and it's like things start to get messy like right away. But um, it's a common thread among yeah, a lot of tolerance is one of the signs of alcoholism that you get increased tolerance. You need more and more of the drugs to get the initial effects, which is what's really driving the addiction itself yeah well okay but that's what i mean it's worth noting because i think there are people out there who are probably you know struggling with this and might be in some form of denial about it and they're just like yeah i can drink it's okay i got it under mm-hmm. control eventually mm-hmm. it's, you know the wheels are going to fall off it's just, yeah you know. so what about writers and drinking uh because this is obviously you know these sorts of problems uh, addiction um, alcoholism, uh, you know, they affect the population widely, but I think that, uh, m- you know, most of us would agree that the writing profession is particularly fraught, uh, when it comes to, uh, booziness, over booziness, like what is it, you know, <laughs> why, why are writers drawn to booze? Why is, why is booze drawn to writers? I think there's so many things going on. I think partly it's maybe more of a 20th century thing. I don't know that this will be a great 21st century story, alcoholism and writers. I don't feel like it's happening in the same way now. So it's partly that it's a century that really permitted it. You know, there's more sort of licentious than we are. And then there's all kinds of, so there's the lifestyle, there's the kind of pressures that writers are under in that they're spending a lot of time alone doing something that's, very difficult, increasingly high pressure, more books to turn out, but also with nobody really there on a day-to-day level to say, hey, good job, nice sentence you turned out there. You know, those sort of rewards come at the end of the year or two years or three years or whatever cycle it is you're on. And they tend to be very stressful in themselves. So you then got the sort of round of exposure and a lot of personal scrutiny. So I think there's, there's that in terms of like the setup of the life. So Hemingway will talk about you know, he'll write all morning sober and then he needs to just change the channel. He needs to get out of that mindset. So he'll have some drinks at that point in the day. And I think that's a sort of a structural excuse for drinking that happens quite a lot. And I think the same thing with John Cheever, that he was he was often using it as a way of escaping out of that. And then there's something else which potentially isn't true of all writers. I'm sure, in fact, isn't true of all writers, but did seem to come up with all of this six, which is... They were often really shy boys, really um, suffered from social anxiety, 
sometimes to an extreme degree, kind of um, escapist, sort of prone to fantasy. And that's something that leads them into storytelling, leads them into wanting to make up fiction. So you get like Fitzgerald as a kid and he'll be making up all these stories about compensatory fantasies about himself as a fantastic footballer, which he wasn't, or <laughs> himself as a very popular boy or the best, you know, whatever. And it's stuff that he's not really is in himself, but he'd like to be. And drinking goes hand in hand with that. It sort of, it feeds those kind of fantasies. It's the same sort of drift out of an experience that's uncomfortable or frightening or alarming or unpleasant. It, it's like a door away. And so you get John Cheever talking a lot about later on, about I'm worried that there's a similarity between my desire to write fiction and my desire to get drunk all the time. And I think the thing that's most key out of all of that is the thing about social anxiety, that that because alcohol seems to be such a release from social anxiety, from panic attacks, from fearfulness, it starts to seem like this sort of magic key out of a situation that's very difficult. But like we were saying earlier, it's not it's not a free pass. It's a pass that over time begins to take a real toll and then a kind of almost a crucifying toll that you're just not able to function. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. I think about addicts in my life, including my, my the friend that I lost and um, total social anxiety, total shy, yeah. sweet, yeah. you know, very sweet too. You know, sweet people, yeah. And it's, 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 you know, that's not necessarily the way that it always is, but that could be like a, a very strong common thread. And, um, you know, I think about like people who really like cocaine, uh, mm. you know, they're often, sh- I feel like they're often shy. <laughs> Yeah, it's and always, that's a way of just engaging this like other social self who's really garrulous and really kind of easy, and yeah. you can you can see why it happens. You can see why people are attracted to the drugs they're attracted to. See, this is why this is this is. I mean, I think like I'm I naturally am so talkative that um, this is why I don't need those things. <laughs> it would be, imagine me on cocaine; it'd be a disaster. I think it would just be a lot faster, this conversation. <laughs> no, people don't want – the world does not need that. We need me. No, need, you're probably better not doing it. No, no. We need sedatives. I don't know what I need. I just need to like <laughs> meditate and calm down. Yeah. Um, but, you know, and, and like it's interesting too, the point that you made earlier, the thought that you had about this potentially not being as big of an issue in the 21st century. And as you were saying that or, or in, the, in the present day, in our era, whatever mm, you want to call it. Yeah. I was thinking uh, this morning, I was walking around my neighborhood and uh, I smelled cigarette smoke. And I know this is different in different places, but I live in Los Angeles and you truly do not see a lot of people smoking. Uh, yeah. At least, you know, I grew up in the Midwest and like you, everyone still smokes back there indoors. You know, it's like it's, it's, oh. still, it's still alive and well back there. In New Orleans, you'll see it, you know, but it, it's increasingly a thing where like you can't smoke in restaurants or bars. You have to go out into the streets and... I feel like as a cultural thing in California, like it's just, you just don't see it as much. And I wonder um, if maybe there's some sort of common thread between that and between the way that, uh, you know, as a a subset of people, writers are approaching alcohol and substance today. Like, are we actually better? Do you think that we're learning? I don't know whether perhaps we're learning or perhaps more cynically, we're just you know, we're more interested in medicating in different ways that we're maybe more writers are on Prozac these days or on, you know, Adderall. whatever. 
It's yeah. A, it's yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I've talked yeah, about. It. I've absolutely. talked about this. It's like the that's the steroid for writers because it you know it helps you focus. It gives you like like bottomless energy or whatever. And, yeah. So. And there's a sort of you know we all watch Mad Men and we're like oh it kind of looks so beautiful but it's icky as well. We wouldn't behave like that. You know we don't have those sort of drunk workplace affairs in that same sort of way. Like we're we've. We're a different kind of culture, I think. Well, I see. I used to smoke cigarettes, uh, being a you know from Indiana. It was like I used I used to chew tobacco when I was in high school. I was <laughs> brilliant, you know, just a brilliant move on my part. But I, I look at it now and I'm like, I'm disgusted by my former self. Like I'm uh, I'm one of those hypocrites who, even though I used to smoke, and I should I should confess too. Like if I'm drunk and I'm around a cigarette, sometimes I'll take yeah. one. You know, I'm not yeah. like I'm no saint here, but like this makes my hypocrisy that much worse because even though I will sometimes do it, uh, on the rare night or whatever, if I pass somebody like I did this morning, especially, especially in the morning, my God, you just woke up and you're smoking a cigarette. Like I'll be like, Oh, you disgust me. (laughs) I don't want to, I don't want to smell anyone's cigarette smoke, but my own. I judgmental. Yes. Hugely. I hugely judgmental and hypocritical. That's my, uh, that's who I am. Apparently. That's your MO. Yes. But do you, I mean, I don't know. Are you a smoker? I'm not a smoker and I hate people smoking. And one of my best friends has just started smoking, which seems like such a retrograde step. And I find it impossible to be around him. I'm constantly having to walk out of rooms that he's in. And well, I'm really unpleasant about it. it. Well, it's just so objectively stupid and so objectively... And it's gross. It's gross. Exactly. That's just what I was going to say. It's objectively dumb at the level of health and well-being. And then it smells and it's dis- it's disgusting. I can't, yeah. I can't believe I ever did it, you know. So what was going on when everyone was doing it? Did nobody notice that it was so horrible? I don't I don't understand. Was there like a sort of collective agreement that it was really nice and sexy? Well, you know, I, there's something about the whole like oral fixation. Because if you watch people smoking on the silver screen, like it I get it. It looks great. It does. It's it, just the smell is so gross. Yes. And, it, and people's hands smell and their clothes. Yeah. Like, it's dis- yeah. Especially in cold weather. You're just like, oh, please, you know, it's disgusting. But um, I don't know. I feel like that is that is thankfully changing. And, you know, to, to think back to like, you know, the earlier eras, I think there were plenty of people who figured it out. And uh, my, I, my grandfather was one of them. I've always thought this was sort of an interesting anecdote. But my dad's dad, who, um, you know, I don't know, he was a butcher. He's just like a regular guy, blue collar uh, person, you know. And he, when my dad... Uh, told his parents that he was engaged, that he'd you know, gotten engaged to my mom. The first thing that my grandfather asked him is, uh, is she Catholic <laughs> and does she smoke? Those are the only two things he cared about. I've always thought that was, Oh new. wow. Yeah. He didn't want her. He didn't want her to be a smoker for some reason, but, and, and, um, you know, was never a smoker himself. I think he probably found it gross. That's really interesting. So did he just not want her to smoke or did he think that that went with all sorts of wayward behavior that he wouldn't like? Maybe, maybe. But I mean, like, and you know what? Maybe it does. (laughs) Uh, If you think about it, you know, like, I don't know. Like, I find, um, I don't know. That's that's too sweeping of a judgment. I have no idea. He's not. He's no longer with us. Otherwise, I would call him up. So we can't that. ask him. Yeah, huh. we can't ask him. But perhaps that's the case. Maybe he wanted her to be a clean living gal or something. Yeah, yeah. Um, but you know, I just feel like uh, I'm very glad that I don't smoke anymore. I can't believe I ever did. 
especially people with kids. I'm sorry, because I feel like we're becoming really judgmental. But I do just want to say, especially <laughs> with kids, that's pretty horrible. I, I'm picturing like thousands of people listening, just smoking cigarettes and just shaking yeah. their heads. Like, Furious. <laughs> <laughs> actually, somebody wrote me an email and said, you don't mention smoking at all, but they're all smoking all the time. And Heming- it's really related. Hemingway didn't smoke. Hemingway didn't smoke, but Chiva, I think, smoked. Raymond Carver definitely smoked. Yes. That's what killed him. I mean, partially. That's what killed him. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but, like, yeah, I remember, like, reading, because I've, I've read a lot of, like, Hemingway literary biography. Uh, he's a fascination to me in some ways. Huh. And uh, I remember him, like, saying stuff like, you know, it affects my ability to hunt. Of course he would couch it in those terms. <laughs> <laughs> he, like, couldn't smell his prey or something, you know? And oh, my God. <laughs> that's such a classic puffed-up Hemingway statement. It really is. It really is. So what, what's your fascination with him? Why are you drawn to him? Well, I think, like, he was, a, you know, an early huge influence on me, as he is uh, for so many young male writers in particular. And I think in particular, not that he can't influence women, but I've thought a lot about this. Like, I think when you're young, adolescent, uh, maybe more sensitive than most people are more sensitive than you feel like you should be, uh, yeah. th- that kind of manly posturing gives you a kind of permission to be that way or gave me a way of maybe thinking about it. Does that make any sense? You know, not that I was hugely like conflicted about my artistic leanings, but I think that might be part of Hemingway's appeal to young men is that he's like booze. He lets you be both sensitive and manly. Right. Exactly. You said it better than I do. So I think that's part of it. And then I think I'm also interested in his actual life because he lived a big life in the way that like Mm. I I think dream of living. Like, a, instead of just being, like, the guy in his basement, like, what, you know, writing about uh, wizards or whatever. Um, not that writing about wizards is bad, but you know what I'm saying? Like, where your fantasy life is completely confined yeah. to your brain. I love the idea of actually, like, going out and, like, living a, a fun life on Earth and then somehow trying to meld that into my books. Like, and that always appealed to me about him. And then yeah. I, I think that, you know, once I got to a certain age, what's become so interesting to me about him is my changing feelings about his work and you know how um how completely dated a lot of it can read to me particularly like the relationship stuff and um and then you start to dig into the life and you know you start to see um how human these people are and so when whenever you've put somebody on a pedestal i think as you get older mm. it becomes in, it, for me anyway it becomes both necessary and interesting to uh humanize them you know i think and instructive yeah. you know you learn yeah. from you learn from his um you know, his his successes, you also learn from their failures. And uh, there are times when I can find myself bad-mouthing him or bad-mouthing other writers. You know, I mentioned Louis Ferdinand Celine, who's, yeah. an, who's another hero who was like a Nazi sympathizer later in his life and really went kind of crazy. Um, and it's mm. like it gets very hard to, like, separate, you know, the art that you admire from the lives of the artists. And yeah. You've, you know, you come to find that they're very human. So. With respect to your book, um, you know, did you struggle with this at all with these people, especially as you're researching where you're like, God. yeah, yeah, absolutely. And actually, Hemingway's interesting because I never planned, I've forgotten this, but I never planned to put Hemingway in it in the first place. And he really worked his way in because I was having to read things by him. And I'd forgotten how incredible he is. I'd really just sort of gone with the like later stereotypes and I'd read them all when I was young and really liked them and then sort of decided that actually he was a bit sort of puffed up and bloated and going back to the Nick Adams stories or for whom the bell tolls is just it's bewitching there's very few people who can match him at the height of his powers I so agree. 
yeah, he really. He's one he of those. Really bewitched me. Well, he's one of those writers who I find like he's so incredibly musical, and mm. you know when you read controlled. somebody, he's yeah he's very controlled. He's extremely musical, and uh, what I find is that he's one of those writers that when you read him, you immediately want to start writing. Yeah, and yeah, uh, and you know yeah. what? Not to those are my favorite writers. I think. Well, and I don't mean to uh, you know. Uh, overindulge in flattery, but I felt the very same way about your book. It, there's a very strong level of musicality to the writing, and it made me like get the itch to go write. That's a high, huh. that's a high compliment, I think. That's really, that's really nice. And I, yeah, I really feel that about Hemingway. Even though there are some things that I read and think he art, and also actually, I, I will answer the ones that the things that put me off. But there was some incredibly touching quote. So I've been reading all sorts of awful things he'd done, and particularly to Fitzgerald. And then Fitzgerald's biographer, Andrew Temple, talked about he was coming back on a ship from Europe and Hemingway was on the boat. And he kept kind of writing notes to him saying, will you meet with me? I want, I'm writing this book about Fitzgerald. And Hemingway was like, no, no, I don't think so. I don't want to. But he'd go up onto deck every day and he'd watch Hemingway walking around. And he said he's kind of, his arms were very thin, his forearms were very thin, which is something I've noticed with alcoholics actually at that kind of stage. And he had this sort of, mask-like face and this expression of sweetness and bewilderment and there's he felt the shyness in him and that really came across and I I found that very touching that there's so much complexity about Hemingway there's stuff that's just so unpleasant and overbearing well that's you know you mentioned earlier the social anxiety and the shyness and like I think people yeah. people looking from the outside in who might not know too much about him as a person would imagine him to be this like Life of, life of the party, like boxing, mm. lion hunting. Yeah. You know, but he was actually, by all accounts, very shy and like ter- yeah. terrified of public speak. I mean, it, it, it's of a piece with the whole drinking thing. Why do, why do you think yeah. he drank? It was to make himself, you know, feel better socially or whatever. Yeah, which is which is really endearing. Or just that there are all those layers. But then you were asking about whether I found things that I didn't like, and the one that I was really surprised by because I absolutely loved him before I started the book is Raymond Carver, who I had huge admiration for and whose writing I still absolutely love. But reading about his post-recovery life, which I suppose I sort of wanted to be, you know, absolutely perfect for him to become a completely benevolent in every way person. <laughs> right. And of course, it's not it's not going to be like that. So I was reading the the fantastically interesting biography by his ex wife, and he 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 had blind spots, and that was really quite hard. I suppose I had him on kind of a pedestal. And, well, with, and with, discovering the blind spots was depressing. I'm I'm from my very spotty memory. I'm remembering reading your book and feeling like wincing as I was reading about his relationships with his children. Yeah, it was the kids. Like he just had like a, I mean, talk about a blind spot, but he was pretty detached. Like, like in in his recovery too, right? Or am I? He yeah, in his recovery, he wrote this famous essay which talked about why he became a drunk, and it was a lot about the children caused me to become a drunk, rather than like the children were acting up because their dad was a drunk, and that just that he couldn't quite take responsibility, and it's such an alcoholic trait to not be able to take responsibility. But I wanted him post recovery to be like kids i'm sorry and perhaps he perhaps he did say that perhaps it was just this essay but it really um it really depressed me yeah well whenever there's kids involved you know because that's yeah. just that's the collateral damage that happens with addicts and um that is the worst of it in my view i mean it's obviously terrible yeah. when adults um get in the way of this kind of destruction but when there's children involved it's just like oof 
But then it's so interesting reading Hemingway's kids' books. His He had three boys, and there's a memoir by one of them called Papa. And it's just so, you know, it's it's hurt and it's really wounded, but it's very tender as well. And he was obviously, in some respects, an incredible dad and very attentive and very interested. So... Again, it's this sort of incredible complexity of character. Well, and I think too, you know, especially with somebody as talented and as with as big of a personality as as him and, and these other guys, you know, it's like uh, these are all very bright, very gifted people who, mm. uh, you know, for all of their troubles, I'm sure when they were at their best, drunk or sober, they were probably yeah. the, they were probably a hell of a good time. <laughs> yeah, the most fascinating person in the room. I'm yeah, sure. my God. Yeah, I mean, you know, that's there, there's a reason why there's this like legend around them, and um, you yeah, know, I think that uh, you know Hemingway's sons must have idolized him. I mean, they're dead. Yeah, they're dead. absolutely. He was. I mean, and the thing too is that it's important to remember the the context uh, that we're talking about with respect to literary history and what literary celebrity meant in their day. Um, he was uh, yes, so he, much more than it means now. Yes, <laughs> I was going to say he's like, uh, you know, in his day, he was one of the most famous uh, entertainers alive. You know, yeah, I guess yeah. that's what you would call him. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Oh, so, uh, is the book out in the UK? Has it already published the there? The book came out. Yeah, it came out in the summer in the UK. Okay, so what's been uh, just over there? Like, what has been the reception? Uh, both, I mean, I guess you know. I'm not as interested maybe critically as I am in like from readers, you know, have you been hearing from readers? Have, have people been yeah, yeah. Com- coming and up to you drunk and you know, <laughs> no, it's been the kind of emails of, I mostly I grew up with, or I've had a relationship with an alcoholic and I recognize this. It's that sort of, it's the very personal connections. So not so much people saying, Hey, I love Hemingway and you've been mean about him. I hate your book. It's, it's more like, you've handled alcoholism in a way that I understand and that, that I like. So that's really heartening. Well, I think what you, I think this is like striking on maybe the main, I mean, it is like the main theme of the book, but like a main theme of our life. And I would take it like one step further and just say that, uh, or, you know, I don't want to speak in such grandiose terms. I, <laughs> what I want to say is that I think that people, uh, you know, so many of us uh, are trying to run away from our suffering via consumption, mm. whether it's alcohol mm. or whether it's like zoning out on the internet or whether it's, um, you know, whatever it might be, but like it's consumption. And I think everyone sort of feels that like we're just trying to shop our way out of it or drink our way out of it or take pills until we feel better or you know, mm. there are a lot of different modes and like this book drills down into one, you know, one particularly common one um, with a lot of clarity and uh, insight and also happens to be like a really good travel book with like great nature writing and a touching personal story. It, it does a lot mm. of things at once. Huh. I hadn't thought of it being such a, yeah, that, that it could be any different addiction. It could be any, any other story. Yeah, I'm, that's a really nice thing to hear. Well, yeah. I mean, I think cons- like the way we consume, like that. I I think about that all the time. Like the way I consume and just the way we consume is like a species. And <laughs> I don't want to get again. I don't want to get too grandiose because I I'm no expert. But it's just like it's it's both like a an actual um, physical observation, but also just kind of like a nagging abstract feeling about the time that we live in. You know, mm. and, and like just yeah. like the masses of people all around me, and like 
watching people walk down the street like with their faces buried in their phones and yep. you yep, know yep, you're just yep, like what yep. are, what are we all so scared running of? away from running you away. know the story i found most touching in the whole in the whole book was john Cheever and his stuff about sexuality that he was drinking in part because what he really wanted was to love men and he couldn't let himself and that seems to me really emblematic in that sort of sense of like we're we're often in so many different ways not quite letting ourselves be who we want to be or to have what we want to have and doing all these weird things in order to deny it and hide from ourselves you know whatever it is it doesn't necessarily have to be about sexuality and that sort of numbing out behavior which i think our age is much more about internet addiction and television addiction and shopping addiction than it is about getting wrecked like those those are the 21st century correlations i guess but I agree. There's, there's something about escapism that's just very touching and sad i guess well, yeah and and also like hard to avoid i mean I, my hands are not mm. clean like i we before we came on the air i was just coming off of like yet another um, ridiculous Twitter binge, you know, <laughs> like yeah, which I was reading because I'm addicted to Twitter. So <laughs> right. yeah, I'm Twitter. Absolutely, like I always say, I'm not addictive. I'm not an addictive personality, but I'm totally addicted to the internet, completely, overwhelmingly. Well, and they say, you know, especially with social media and with like likes and thumbs up and stars and retweets and all that kind of stuff. Like they actually have measured this and like, there's a real like shot of like dopamine or whatever that you get in your yeah. brain. Like there's a neurochemical yeah. uh, equation at work and it's, you know, at least but part it's of just the... like doing shots. Yes. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it does feel good. I do feel good. And you know, Ugh. But, you know, and then bad, then really bad. Yes. I'm glad. I'm actually glad that like this conversation was buttressed up against that because it took my mind off how bad I was feeling in the immediate aftermath. You know, that vacant kind of like hollowed out. Why did I just do that feeling of, you know, yeah. um, but you know, I, I feel like, uh, I guess that's just another way of saying that I feel like your book speaks to a lot of the bigger themes that are at work in our culture right now. And just among people and uh, I'm really excited uh, about it uh, being released in the States. I have a good feeling about it for what it's worth. And I'm really grateful to you, know, to you for taking the time to talk with me. Oh, it's been such a pleasure. Okay, you guys, there you have it. That is Olivia Lang. You can find her online at olivialang.co.uk. She's on Twitter at Olivia Language. And she's also on the Facebook. Thanks to Kill Rockstars, as usual, for the great music. Be sure to check out KillRockStars.com, though I did use at the top of the show during the monologue a uh, Brian Eno song. And uh, what's it called? October Sky, Late October. Hang on a second. What's it called? Late October by Brian Eno. Go download that and uh, make Brian Eno even richer. Don't forget about the app, the uh, free official Other People app. It's the best way to listen to this program. New episodes automatically upload to the app. You don't have to do anything. Uh, also, you can download episodes to listen to while you're offline. And best of all, you can access the full archives, premium content, all of it, all via the app. So please go get that. It's available right now for your iPhone, iPad, iPod Touch, or Android device. And once again, the app itself is free. Okay, so uh, Twitter. I hate to go there, but I went there, talked about Twitter. Uh, read my Twitter. Let me know what you think. Peruse my Twitter. Am I embarrassing myself? Is this a bad career move? Have I done something tragic and horribly misguided? It's okay. I can take it. Just tell me. Just uh, pull me aside and gently inform me. 
that I'm an underappreciated genius in need of sedatives. Please remember that uh, the first English translation of Madame Bovary was done by a daughter of Karl Marx and that Antonio Gaudi died after being hit by a streetcar in Barcelona. That's it for now. Thanks for listening. Thanks again to Olivia Lang. Go get her book. Uh, I shall return soon. Wednesday. Wednesday is Christmas Day, and uh, I feel like there should be a show on Christmas Day. Uh, It is my gift to you. (laughs) You know what? Especially if you happen to be alone or without family or uh, if you are with family and desperately want to get away from them. Just put some headphones on and join me, and I will uh, try to entertain you. Okay? Hang tough, everybody. Don't drink too much. It's a Band-Aid for a gaping wound. Remember that. The only way out of this pain uh, is to go deeply into this pain. We must confront. We know this. We've all seen Star Wars. It's all right there. Luke had to confront Darth. Did he not? Confront our Darth. We must. (laughs) Do you like that? Like that you do? Talking like Yoda I am. Annoying this is. Annoying myself I am. (laughs) 